Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you. All right, I'm going to get straight into it. Mm -hmm. What's a wetland? What's a wetland? Wow, excellent (laughs) question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh... We'll just evacuate. Yep. Let's try this again. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode we're joined by biologist, ecologist, and wetline enthusiast, Lindsay Frost. Lindsay, thanks a second time <laughs> for being on the podcast. Thank you, James. Lovely to be back in here. <laughs> we just got an uh, insight into real life as a scientist and dealing with fire alarms going off for mm. no apparent reason. Proper evacuation. <laughs> yes, but where, where were we, Lindsay? We were talking about wetlands. Yes. And you spend a lot of time in wetlands. I do. So what makes a wetland a wetland? Well, most importantly, it doesn't have to be wet land. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Explain that. <laughs> uh, particularly in Australia, because we have such an arid climate, we often have temporary wetlands. So at times they're inundated and they support an aquatic community but they can and mostly for those types of wetlands should dry out sometimes it's part of their natural life cycle so Mm -hmm. you can't always spot a wetland easily in the landscape and that does create some issues for management for them sometimes people can't tell they're dealing with a wetland when they are uh, but generally in um A broad definition of a wetland is something that can support an aquatic community when it's wet. So it's not just like a stream or a lagoon. Although (laughs) they can be those things. You can have permanent wetlands. um, But they're generally, to give a very broad description, they're not a lake. So they're Mm -hmm. not really deep. uh, And some of them are permanent, but they're not necessarily that lake style of thing that you might picture and they're not generally um, fast flowing so they might have an element of flow to them or they might get wet by overbank flow which has some flow with it Mm -hmm. but they're generally fairly slow moving environments uh, and not deep. So I guess my classic first thought of a wetland is something like Lake George when you're driving to Canberra Mm -hmm. which I I don't think I've ever seen water in it since I was Well, Lake Eyre is a classic example of Mm. a wetland. Uh, It's one of our most famous wetlands in Australia, and yet it only gets wet every 20 years. So as a wetland ecologist, could you look at a landscape and say that's a wetland? What's a sign of a... To a degree. uh, So I'd be more likely to be able to pick ones that are associated with a river system, so you would have some awareness of water nearby. That doesn't have to be the case. They can be completely ephemeral and filled by rainfall or... Um, groundwater seepage. Uh, Generally some of the sediments that you'll see there are finer because they've been through different processes through the wetting and drying cycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, There'll be uh, clues in the vegetation so if you see sedges in a landscape even if it looks dry they have probably been wet enough to establish there so that landscape must get wet enough to support that sedge community. Yeah as opposed to something like Lake Eyre that's kind of just flat sand <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean that's clearly at the end of a river system and will fill when water runs down the channels to yeah. it so that would be a big hint that it's at the end of a river channel it's likely to get wet all right yeah. so well not often though because <laughs> <laughs> i mean what does it take then to fill certain wetlands i imagine some of them are quite seasonal yep 
if you have a season that's rainy and they just sort of fill, whereas other ones you might need big floods and things, right? Yeah, so um, like in tropical areas, wetlands um, might fill on a seasonal basis. So for example, in the Northern Territory, you can expect a rainy season. Wetlands are going to fill when that happens or when you have predictable uh, seasonal floods that are going to overflow the banks of their rivers. Um, Something like Lake Eyre or those big inland wetlands in very arid regions often don't fill from any localised rainfall at all. It's rainfall miles and miles up the catchment. For example, they can mm. say if it rains in Queensland, we know in a couple of months Lake Eyre is going to be full because uh, we just know it'll travel down that system and get to there. Um, but you can't necessarily spot that that's going to happen because there's clouds in the sky. So tell us about the wetlands that you work in. I work in the Gwaida wetlands, which is a complex out west of Moree. Um, it's got a multiple channels involved in it. I work on the lower Gwaida channel uh, at a specific spot called Old Dramana. It's an old grazing station. Mm-hmm. So the, the place people that are listening, this is like northern inland New South Wales. Yes, that's essentially. right. Essentially, yeah. Yep. At sort of the upper end of the Murray-Darling catchment, so it's mm-hmm. part of that Murray-Darling basin setup. Um, they are, they can connect through to the river system beyond them in big floods, but they don't do that so much anymore. So it's functionally like a delta, but an inland delta. Yeah, that that's always weirded me out about the Murray when I, someone pointed out to me that it flows away from the ocean. Well, it doesn't. It, well, <laughs> well <laughs> in, there in these sorts of areas, <laughs> you'd think we're up near the coast-ish. Yeah. But the water's not going that way. We're on the other side of the yeah. divide. It can only go downhill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so you're up here in northern New South Wales, water's flowing south, mm-hmm. but this wetland you're in it is a dead end part of that system, essentially. A lot of the time, yeah. yeah. In a big flow, it'll connect through. Dead end, there are many groundwater ecologists who will take me to task on that. Oh. The surface water eventually seeps into the... the the soils, okay. the centers, but there could be subsurface flow that then goes on and connects either into aquifers or other channels. Good, that was going to be my next question. What happens to the water? Does <laughs> <laughs> it evaporate? It's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. But so tell me about how these wetlands fill. Is this a flood area? What happens? Yeah, in the olden days, it would be local rainfall or. Um, uh, flows from higher up in the catchment, but uh, like many places in the Murray-Darling Basin, these uh, wetlands are constrained now in their extent and their ability to fill by regulation on the river, so there are lots of dams and weirs. So these days, the, the wetland that I work in um, largely only fills with environmental flows. So water has to be directed to those wetlands from storages for them to get wet. Very localised rainfall will do it, uh, but the... Um, the main way they receive their water is a managed flow. Mm, so then these dams that are stopping it, are these big dams for like keeping drinking water for people or what? What's uh, the one of the main ones here? is Copeton Dam. Mm-hmm. Um, so that provides domestic water supply but also holds water uh, in reserve to be able to apply for different uses, so for irrigation and agricultural domestic use. Right. So I imagine then this presents us with a bit of a, a conflict where we have to choose whether we use water for people or for a wetland, is that right? Uh, I don't believe you have to choose. I think Mm. you can try and do both. I'm very glad I'm not the person who has to decide how that (laughs) is done. Um, I personally am really quite fond of eating food and wearing clothes, which Mm -hmm. means by default I must support 
productive enterprises. They need water to provide to me what they provide, to mm -hmm. provide to all of us. I think that's a valid use of water. We wouldn't have the societies that we do if we didn't manage water for our own use. But uh, there is the potential that if the water is um, managed with no regard for it, the environment um, or overutilised, that we won't have a healthy river system and nobody can live on a sick or dead river. So mm. there is a, a trade-off to be had uh, between the different uses. Some of the commonly kind of given uh, motivations for water usage are political, that's obviously a big thing, economic, um, and, but also social and cultural uses are really important. So particularly in the Murray-Darling, um, First Nations people have quite an attachment to the rivers that they live along and mm. it is culturally significant to them to have a healthy river. Mm. So who does decide where water goes? Ooh. Is that a government thing? Is that a, what, what happens? Uh, it's a combination of state and federal government hold entitlements of environmental water and the decisions made by way more than one person ultimately for Commonwealth environmental water there is an individual named the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, oh. uh, and that is actually one individual. They are advised by the Commonwealth Environmental Water Office, and that office liaises with all sorts of different groups and organisations in and out of government to make the decision about how the water gets used. Sounds like a very stressful position to be in. Just another reason I'm glad I'm not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Especially given where we are in Australia, in a, in a very, very dry part of what is a very, very dry continent to begin with, yep. and it's also a big agricultural region. Yep. This is a hot topic, water itself, right? Yep, sure is, yep. <laughs> so the Murray-Darling Basin, which receives a lot of that focus around environmental watering because of the, the huge plan that the government's invested in to manage water in the basin, it's our largest river system, but it's also our largest agricultural production area and supports in excess of 2 million people, mm. I think, in terms of living there and obviously the products that it produces support beyond that. So it's not an easy thing to manage. I think Australia has been brave in taking it on as a project or a concept to, to try and manage it. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be much easier to say, oh, let's not even try. Uh, I think the recognition that we need a healthy river, the terminology they use is actually a healthy working river because that acknowledges mm. the fact that the river system itself needs to be in good health, but it's also required uh, to provide. Not everybody likes that phrase, but that's the reality of water usage. Yeah, but I mean, even just thinking of my Lake George example, whenever you drive past that, you now see it's all sheep grazing land along that. And imagine being a... A floodplain makes it ideal land for you know, human use, really, and for grazing and things like that. Yeah, um, floodplains are typically really fertile land. It's part of the, the biogeochemical processes that go on when um, floodwaters come through carrying sediments and nutrients and that kind of thing, and they create these inundated areas which produce different kinds of vegetation or support different animal communities and stuff. And then when they subside, that changes back to a terrestrial environment. Lots of detritus, dead animals, all sorts of things um, contribute to a nutrient pool that goes into that soil and is processed in a way that makes it available so that when the water comes through again, those nutrients are ready to go bang up out of the soil and supports really high productivity. That makes them particularly attractive to people to use as productive land. Mm. But to use it, you generally have to stop that flooding process because otherwise for the time that it's wet, you can't use it. 
and when you remove that cyclical um, wetting and drying, you actually uh, lose a lot of those benefits. So mm. it's a tricky one. So is it a straightforward sort of situation of the more water you have, the more life these areas can support? No, no, I don't think it's ever that easy. Um, working out how much is enough is impossible. Mm. I, I don't think there's a single number because it will depend on what you think it's enough for. So. Well, it's that, a value I mean, that's judgment interesting in every to hear you say because that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're going out to these lower wider wetlands yep. and looking at what happens when water arrives, right? Yep, that's correct. So I'm trying to work out how much energy can be re produced in food resources in the wetland, uh, particularly comparing two different vegetation community types, so structural communities it's, um, uh, that sort of make up the broader part of the wetland, to see how much energy can be provided to higher order consumers so that we can understand better how that wetland can support those consumers, which are often the stated goal of environmental watering. So, so let, let's let's translate that a bit. What, what's a higher order consumer? <laughs> oh, sorry, big animals. So All right. ducks or fish or something that uh, it sits higher in the food chain um, and needs those resources to survive. So they can't go through their breeding cycle. They can't get through their life cycle without basal resources uh, provided to them. Uh, so frequently with something like environmental watering, um, a target will be set to say we would like a bird breeding event. So we're, we're right. going to aim for a 10,000 bird breeding event in this area. And so we apply water to that wetland and try and achieve that outcome. We understand quite well how those things like water birds will respond to a wedding event. Um, what we're not as clear on is what are the mechanisms supporting that response. So mm. what's happening right down at the base level, chemical level, you know, nutrient supply, that kind of thing, that builds the base of that food web that's supporting them to get through that breeding event. So any management decision that you make is made on what they call best available science. Mm. It's a term that everyone would have heard used. But whenever you investigate that body of knowledge, there will be something that you can improve on. And so that's what I'm doing. I've found an opportunity to, to fill in a gap in some of our knowledge in, in looking at the processes that support the amount of energy that comes out of a food web for those big things of interest that are the target for the mm -hmm. environmental watering um, so that we can refine that knowledge. So say we want to you know, for say a conservation plan we want to look after a whole bunch of birds or yep. something but you know these birds aren't just turning up to a wetland because it's got drinking water it's got to have food and habitat yep. and shelter and all of those to, create, to have all of those things there at the base of that is going to then be the water that's right, right. Yep. so you're looking at that that middle bit what's in between just water and a bird and community birds. that's right yeah okay so uh, the simplistic way that I like to put it is, I often say, how much water does it take to grow a duck? Because you know a duck needs to eat, say, a bug. Uh, that bug might need to eat a smaller bug, and that smaller bug might need to eat algae. And algae needs to eat sunshine, nutrients, and water. Mm -hmm. So you need to provide enough of all those basic things to then support production in, in those higher order consumers, as I call yes. them, the bigger animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we know that the ducks will respond, or the water birds, however you want to phrase it, we know that they will respond to particular watering events and we understand what some of the triggers are, whether it's extent or breeding habitat or the length of time that it's available for or whatever. 
but we haven't investigated those mechanisms and we're hoping that by looking at those mechanisms we can put some more numbers around uh, what what the predicted outcomes could possibly be. So improving mm. our predictive capacity for the outcomes of environmental watering events. We know we'll get an outcome, but if we can improve our ability to predict the scale of that outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Would that mean just being a bit more efficient then with the water that we direct to these wetlands? It could, yes. That would be the hope. shoot the target? That's right. If you don't need as much as you're using now, that's great. If you need more than you're using now, that's another thing you need to know. Mm. So filling in those little bits and pieces. And hopefully, I think this sort of work would draw attention to all the cool stuff that isn't charismatic birds. And That's things. right. <laughs> I don't know, as, as, as an ecologist, are, are we in agreement that, you know, sometimes people get really excited about charismatic, fluffy things when Absolutely. there's lots of other cool stuff going on? Absolutely. And those charismatic, cool, fluffy things can't survive without the other things that are sitting below them that aren't as sexy like tiny bugs or bacteria or yeah. spoogy algae. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, those things have to be there, but they're not as fun to look at. Also, sadly, they're probably not as um, enticing to fund. Mm. So if you have a limited uh, capacity to sell a project in terms of who's going to give you money for it, you'll sell the thing they care about. Well, as a person that works on bugs and spiders, I can, <laughs> I can vouch for this. <laughs> yeah. So how do you actually get a handle on the, the middle bits yeah. and all the, the basal organisms and processes? Uh, close your eyes and concentrate. <laughs> so uh, the food webs, that, what I'm going to do to try and answer those questions that I'm asking in my project is to build food webs uh, at different stages in an inundation cycle. So at the, the filling stage, the full stage and the, the drying phase to see how those trophic interactions change at different points in an inundation cycle and what the amount of water available at any given time might mean to mm -hmm. those, how those food webs are structured. And I'm looking at the very bottom part of it. So I am actually going to attempt to incorporate bacteria into the wetland food web. Uh, difficult, but not completely impossible. Uh, and then work from microorganisms up to small bodied fish. Uh, beyond that, I mean, there are lots and lots of things that could be included that I just don't have scope to do. Um, but beyond that, we have a pretty good understanding of how the consumers that are larger than that are responding. What we want to trace is the process that gets mm. to there. So when you say you're building a food web, I'm picturing like what I saw in my biology textbooks with a schematic with pictures of animals and arrows going here and there saying this one's eating this yep. one and that sort of stuff. That's the one. So you can go on, you can collect a whole bunch of bugs and a whole bunch of bacteria and algae and things. Yep. That's great, but how do you know who's eating who? <laughs> Would you That's just got to sit there and watch? Very good question. Yeah, happen. bring it home and just get a big fish tank. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the I guess the the gold standard in freshwater food webs has been stable isotope analysis for mm -hmm. a long time. So particularly tracing um, different isotopes of carbon and nitrogen accumulate from source to consumer in different ways, and it actually the carbon allows you to assess who's eating who, and the nitrogen allows you to assess where they sit in the trophic. Um, 
levels. So yeah. you can see, you can map out from source to consumer and step through those levels. Uh, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't get the source, if you don't collect it, then it's a mystery. So as with anything, you have to be pretty thorough in choosing what uh, you're going to sample uh, to make sure you get all the relevant sources and consumers. There is another um, analysis technique that's coming to the fore, which is fatty acid analyses. Uh, they help to us to define essentially the quality of the energy that's available. So certain fatty acids are essential for consumer growth and health or reproduction or whatever. And you can't always get them, you can't always make them yourself, you have to get them from your diet. And for freshwater organisms, we know there are several that are particularly important. And so if we can find sources of those fatty acids, we can make a value judgment on the quality of that energy Mm. resource to a consumer. Some of those, not all of them, but some of them are unique and not changed by the consumer, so you can also use them to chart consumption. I mean, stable acidship is one of those things that have always weirded me out. I mean, I get it, but then I also don't get it. (laughs) You've got things like carbon, but it can be different forms of carbon. Yeah, it can and have a different, uh, what do they call it, M- molecular weight, atomic yeah. weight. Yeah. yeah, so you can essentially look at the carbon in, say, algae, and then look at the carbon in an insect and see if it's the same type of carbon and if that algal carbon's being accumulated into the insect it's not a body type of thing. It's not a different type of carbon. It's different ratios of carbon of different isotopes within an organism. And then as that's consumed, it accumulates in different... All right. So it's carbon with a different signature, almost. Yes, it's a... Yeah. <laughs> this is why we need an a atomic chemist a here. A different to... isotope of yeah. carbon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've even had atomic chemists try and explain isotopes to me. And again, I get it, but then I don't get it. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things. <laughs> and now, if, if this sounds interesting to people, mm-hmm. hopefully soon, not in situ science... We'll be seeing you in action. I had the yeah. wonderful opportunity to follow you out into the field and actually film your work. Thanks. Because uh, you were a recipient of an NCG Science Research Excellence Award. For which I am immensely grateful. <laughs> Should probably <laughs> plug it on here, if <laughs> nowhere else. <laughs> and it was great because we got to go out into this, this wetland, which was, well, yeah, it was a flat, I want to say swampy yeah. type of place. And we jumped in an ATV and trudge through reeds and, and find cool stuff. Yeah. And you were comparing two very different habitat types. So you're going That's to big right. open areas where there's lots of standing water and then other areas where you, know, you couldn't see the wetland for all the reeds type of <laughs> habitat. Right. Yeah, so the, I'm trying to compare uh, how food webs and also energy quality differ between um, those two structural habitat types. So one is really tall and dense, so mm-hmm. reeds like typha. Uh, which don't allow a lot of light infiltration, so there's not as much algal production in there. So we expect that the food web there will be driven by uh, bacterial assimilation of carbon from detritus and stuff. Some algal production, but not as much as in those big open areas where you get lots of sunshine, shallow water, it's nice and warm, it's plenty of nutrients, perfect algae-growing country mm-hmm. uh, and so we expect that that food web would be driven by algal production. Alright, and, and are we expecting one of them to be higher productivity than the other? Yes. So I, w- well, yes. In, not not in to st- put a value judgment <laughs> on these different habitats. Well, but. I'm all over value judgment. Um, 
In terms of calories of energy produced, possibly not, but it's about the type of energy that comes through. So uh, bacteria are not capable of producing some of those fatty acids that I was talking about that are essential for consumers to get out of their diet. So if you're eating uh, out of a food web that is driven by that kind of production, it, you might have a million calories available to you, but it's like a million calories of rice crackers. Whereas mm. if you go out into those algal areas, those um, algal species do produce those fatty acids that are essential for aquatic consumers. And so you might have a million calories, but a million calories of steak and veg. Mm. So and it is an amazing habitat having been there because, I mean, to get there, you're driving through Outback Australia and it's dry and sandy yeah. and quite barren. And then you get to this you essentially drive over a hill and there's this oasis yeah. of, of green w- with all sorts of life. Yep. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they respond so fast. Wetlands can respond so quickly to mm. water. And the, um, I guess the Australian organisms are used to that boom and bust kind of mm. uh, cycle. And they respond really quickly as well. They'll flock to wetlands, literally flock uh, to wetlands as soon as they get wet because of the availability of, of resources. They boom very fast. Yeah. And, and you should know that I'm still pulling uh, those camel burrs out oh. of my laundry <laughs> from only being there for yeah. three days. My husband's locked my hiking boots away. They're <laughs> 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 diabolical, yeah. Other than that, it, it was great. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, to, to see that contrast when you see what what that wetland can produce and how mm. green and beautiful it can be compared to the areas that haven't got water on mm. them. I know this research you're doing is part of a master's that you're doing part-time. That's correct. That you're also balancing with another role here at UNE as a technical officer. (laughs) Full-time. Yes. So that doesn't add up. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) So I guess, I mean, technical officers are something we never talk about on this podcast. Right. Because, well, I guess I just haven't. They had them on, right? <laughs> but the, you're, you're sort of the the backbone of of university research. Yeah, um, they keep us in sort of different ways. Some of us look after undergraduate teaching. Some of us look after research. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there's crossover, but yeah. Um, so, what would you say important. in your role as a technical officer? Are you being a scientist? Ooh. Mm. In the strictest sense, yes, Mm -hmm. because I'm observing what goes on around me. I'm identifying gaps in the knowledge, and I'm attempting to fill those gaps, James. Oh, can can you give me an example? Philosophical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's just how I approach my everyday life, to be honest. (laughs) I don't think scientist is a choice for me. I think that way of thinking is just how it's done. Uh, Yeah, of course we do. So there are some elements where it is follow the procedure and get it done. There are other um, elements of our role where we're essential to providing that experience to the students. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, we're taking them out in the field, we're explaining ecological concepts to them with the academic involved, obviously. Yeah. helping them learn how to use different pieces of equipment, instructing them in field techniques, uh, all the information that, particularly when you're a research student, that you come in freshly minted, full of enthusiasm, and what do I do next? Yeah. Uh, you come and see my cupboard full of gear, I'm going to help you out, work yeah. out how you can go about this. So if you go to university and you come and do a course and there's all these fancy labs with all these amazing samples and equipment and stuff, you're, you're the one that makes it happen. Yes. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about, yep. uh, as well as not representing technical officers on this podcast, I don't think I've represented consultants Ooh. on this podcast, which again is another huge big field of science and science professionalism, which you also have work experience Yes, in. I spent a year as a uh, field ecologist with a consultancy before I came up to be a techo. Yeah. What, what do environmental consultants do? <laughs> Anything they're told. <laughs> uh, actually, it was a real eye-opener. Uh, I'll have to give a plug to Jeremy Brule and his plant taxonomy unit in this. I, was, I am plant blind, and I did the unit because it was a core unit, and I had to, and I happily finished and thought, right, I'm never going to remember another plant in my life. And then I went and got a job as a field ecologist and spent most of it doing veg surveys. <laughs> so that was a very useful skill to, uh, to have. Um, any number of things, really. It depends what the projects are that are on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the sidekick a lot of the time. So going out and learning with like a senior botanist and assisting them with field surveys. Um, oh, that's not true. I did quite a lot of work by myself. Uh, doing clearing work and uh, veg assessments and things like that. So you can be involved in environmental impact assessment work. You can be doing uh, monitoring work. Uh, We did observation of clearing on certain sites. So where they have guidelines they have to follow about how uh, trees are taken out or whatever. There's Mm. often an ecologist on site. So it's interesting. You got to go and see lots of places and meet lots of different people. So as a consultant, you're essentially a, a scientific gun for hire for organizations that need something done yep. right so what, what sort of clients would need these services uh, everybody <laughs> <laughs> no really so we did we had some contracts that were tied up with the commonwealth government we had contracts with mining companies but we also had contracts with just mum and dad individuals who were going to chop off a chunk of their rural property for development and they needed an environmental impact assessment all right done. or not a full-scale e, um, EIS, but they mm. needed an, an assessment done, so we would go and do work for them as well. So, mm-hmm. The important thing about being a gun for hire when you're a consultant is that you have to do it with good conscience, and I was very proud to work for the company that I did. They always did it with good conscience. They never gave the client the answer that they asked for. Mm. They gave the client... They answered the client's question, which is a different thing. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point, because in one way you're working for the client, but in another way you're... Working for the environment. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. You, no no consultant goes to be a consultant because they don't like the environment. You're not there to help an organisation find loopholes. No. To let them do whatever they want to do. No, and there was it was definitely very much uh, no uh, cultural pressure within the company to do that kind of thing. It was go and do the science do a good job, just make sure you're answering their question. Mm-hmm. Whether you answer it the way they wanted it done or not, uh, yeah. you know, that's what we do it for, is mm. to find out uh, what do they need to know and uh, how can they deal with the situation. I imagine this is probably a pretty good place to be an environmental consultant as opposed to you know, working in the burbs and just looking at whenever people want to build a new housing development or skyscraper and yeah. what you know, bylines they have to adhere to. You're actually doing some pretty interesting stuff out in this part of the world, right? Yeah, we, um, the, the project that we had that was tied up with the Commonwealth Government, uh, which is also uh, done in collaboration with UNE at the moment, uh, was monitoring environmental water usage in the Murray-Darling Basin. And as part of that, I used to get to go out to a station called Taral, which is west of Burke, and it's just the most magnificent place. <laughs> it's dusty, it's stinky, the water smells funny, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> 
As you do, you have quite an affinity for these wet places, right? I do. This is, this is where you're, you're meant to be? Yep. Water's my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a story. that uh, I, was, I grew up in far north Queensland, and so what you do for fun is swim. Mm. But if you're like me, you prefer to swim where places where there aren't crocodiles. Yep. I think that's pretty sensible. <laughs> uh, which means rocky headwater streams, beautiful, fast-flowing rivers, you know, nice and clear. That's mm. my place that I love to be, that kind of environment. And I discovered in my late 20s that I was probably also a scientist. I came to UNE and did my degree externally. Uh, it took me quite a while, but I got there. Um, and so I fell in love with the idea of science as well, but it really didn't occur to me that I could science water. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an aquatic ecology unit here, and uh, it had a good reputation as having a fun field trip, and I thought, oh, that's an excuse to go and see a river. Yep, I'll do that, and it was just blew my mind because I suddenly realised I could combine those two passions mm. and, and do science in wet places. I mean, that's the, the very facile way of putting it. But um, the thing I like most about science is that it's a systems thinking environment. You, mm. you never think of anything in isolation in science. And I, I guess that's what makes me an ecologist. You know, I'm always trying to work out how things influence other things. And um, you have to go a fair way to get more complex than water in terms of system interactions. So you discover the water connection later on. What made you take the change or take the leap into science in the first place then? That's a daggy story. I was going Go out on. with a guy it's who was, <laughs> <laughs> I was going out with a guy who was a field technician for BHP Billiton. Alright. And we met one of his friends who used to go out on all these crazy field trips with him, and he was an archaeologist. And I thought, hey, these guys get paid to go camping. I work in a car yard and they get paid to go camping. This is just not on. I'd better go and do some stuff. And so I signed up for a single unit of archaeology here at UNE. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. But in the process, I probably discovered that I was more interested in environmental science generally. Mm-hmm. And I'll be perfectly honest, I signed up for the bachelor's degree because then I didn't have to pay for it unit by unit. <laughs> <laughs> I could put it on X <laughs> and discovered that that was one of the best decisions I'd ever made. I just fell in love with it. You yeah. couldn't talk me out of it now. I mean, lots of people that I talk to have gone through the university system and inevitably do the whole finish high school, go, I may as well go to university oh, yeah. and then follow that all the way through. And then they end up as working professionals then trying to do, trying to figure out then how to start a family and how to you know get their life sorted and all that. You've done it the other way around. So yeah. you had a life, had a family, then gone back and did a career change. Yeah. Which I'm sure presents a whole different suite of challenges. Yeah, I'm not going to say one's easier than the other. No. <laughs> so when I left school, I was going to be a classical musician. I was going to tour all over Europe playing my flute, and that was life. And I went to the Conservatorium of Music. I also went to more parties than I did lectures. And <laughs> So that one didn't work out, and so I had to get a real job, and I did mortgage broking for a while. I worked in a dress shop, I worked at a bank, I did a whole bunch of different things. Uh, Landed myself a career doing um, human resources at my local council in a small town on the Queensland border, which was an absolute blessing, I think, that will Mm. serve me well for the rest of my days, but it wasn't my passion. Uh, And so all of that time I was doing my undergraduate degree here by um, correspondence, and uh, have been one of the fortunate ones able to make the change so quickly. So mm. I got a job straight out of my degree yeah. and have then come back for more because I'm a sucker for punishment, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> With two young kids and a very supportive husband who just nod and smile. And <laughs> It does put a bit of a dampener on the getting paid to go camping thing. You've got to stay home a bit more. Yeah. 
that's okay. I like them. I like staying <laughs> home with them. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing that is definitely easier about being a field biologist. Yeah. As a you know young single unattached person, you can't just jump on a plane and yep. disappear for a couple of months. Yep. Which you can't do when you've got kids well, that you need can, a parent. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's whether you want to be that person or not. Yeah. <laughs> You haven't roped the kids into being field assistants yet? Well, not quite yet, but you've seen the wetland, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'd lose them in there pretty fast. (laughs) (laughs) So what's it feel like then, having a life, working in uh, HR, carryards and all your other past roles? When you're doing those roles, were you just working or were you following a career trajectory? Because... I mean, now you seem to find your passion and a trajectory that you want to work on. Yep. Was it the same back in those other roles? Uh, It was for the music originally. Uh, It just didn't sort of last through. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you could laugh at where I've ended up in terms of competitive industries. The classical music industry is not an easy (laughs) place to get a regular gig. It sounds a fair bit like being a postdoc, right? Um, (laughs) I hear all these horror stories. They they lure you in with the idea of the education and then you find out. It's, you know, it's scientific equivalent of being a rock star. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Look at do this, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only most of you just have got not enough money to eat. Um, no. Uh, that passion was there for music, but it didn't last. And for everything else, it was just marking time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I knew fairly early on, so I was about, I think I was 27 when I started my undergrad. And I knew within a couple of years that that was it. Mm. Um, but it was hard to finish because in the process I had two kids and built a house and got myself a career, I could mm. easily have done HR as a career. Uh, and there was a moment when I went back to work after my second child, I had a two-year-old and a, well, nearly a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and a full-time job and mm. six units to go, and it was, oh, <laughs> <laughs> how much do I want this? But the answer was I want it pretty bad, so yeah. I did it. Well, there's lots of people in you know, the university system that have only experienced... You know, the competitive you know, scientific career pathway that end up reaching a point where they kind of go, I just, I just want a nine to five. Yep. I just want to work and earn money and switch off. But is is it that nice? <laughs> Do you think people Sometimes. ever actually are happy uh, going from you know, a very passion driven? line of work to just doing something where they they don't actually care about it but it brings them money is it that easy it's not that easy i think it depends on what the value set is for that individual so um i was actually having this conversation with someone else just this morning i know uh my baseline because i've been in a lot of places that weren't right for me and Mm. i you know uh, my baseline is my family as long as i have them Mm. everything's fine so I could pack shelves at Big W, I could paint skyscrapers, I could be a scientist, I could whatever. Mm. I don't mind what I do as long as I have that. So it depends on that individual's value set. If the nine to five means that they can have something else which is more valuable to them than the means of getting an income, mm-hmm. then it's fine. They'll be happy because they have something else to yeah. that's driving that happiness. You know, If it's the actual passion that goes with a science career and they don't have anything else that matches that then maybe they won't mm. I don't know it's hard to say <laughs> and, and speaking of passions do you still play the flute 
Oh, very occasionally. Yeah, yeah I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> I can do my study when the kids are in bed. Practicing your flute when they're in bed, not such a good idea. <laughs> but it sounds like you're you're pretty highly trained. So it's it's in yeah, there in the yeah. muscle memory. It is, and it's a joy somewhere. to get it out. A joy under disappointment. So I get it out, <laughs> and I still probably sound reasonable enough that you know most people won't choke on their lunch. But <laughs> but um. I only own music that is conservatorium standard, so it's kind of like, you know, being a, an Olympic marathon runner and then you take 10 years off and you go, oh, i just put my sneakers on and smash out a marathon. And it's, oh, that hurt. <laughs> you can't just, do you a know, couple of 5K runs, hey? Yeah. Do some Mary Had a Little Lambs. To yeah, yeah, that's something. right. Yeah. <laughs> so I pull out my music sometimes and go, oh, oh. And then I, I don't fun. know, not that I was a classical guitarist, but even now I feel like when I pull out a guitar... My fingers just don't move no. the way they used to. They're not always That's listening, kind of are scary. they? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sending the message, and you're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, well, we'll put this up as soon as we can, okay. and then following soon will be this video showing these amazing wetlands oh, that you're in. But if people want to find out more about the work that you do and shoot, you know, get tweets about your amazing uh, yes. sites you go to visit, <laughs> you're on Twitter. <laughs> I am. Uh, Frosty Camps is my Twitter handle. Is that what I call Camps. it? At Frosty Camps, does, that's me. I'm does not that a have a story. Frosty Camps behind. <laughs> yeah, I'm Frost. My husband's Camps. Well, oh. we've never quite got around to getting married, so that's why there's no name change. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't put much thought into it because I originally signed up to Twitter just to get bushfire alerts. <laughs> but I'm getting better at using it. So yeah, yeah. I think my, I joined Twitter to get extra storage on Dropbox. Right. I mean, that was my initial. <laughs> <laughs> So at Frosty Camps on Twitter, and then your video will be up soon. But thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Lindsay. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. If you want to check out more, we're at In-Situ Science on social media, or check out in-situ-science.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.